Good, 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 good. Hey, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Apocalypse on the front row, but that's all right. We're going to get in, all right? That was like a joke and nobody laughed, so we're going to have a great day today. You ready? Here we go. We are in Ephesians still, uh, and I'm not going to front. If I had it my way, we would be in this text for about three hours today. I know it just scared some of y'all, all right, but it's all right. I promise we're going to keep it normal length, all right, but if I was in a black church right now, which is where I grew up, somebody would say, take your time, pastor, and give me permission. Y'all are like, not today, all right, so here we go. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Ephesians 6 is where we're at. Uh, man, we're rounding the corner. We're almost done. Ephesians has six chapters. We're starting chapter 6 today, and uh, I just love this book. So if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are actually coming down the sides right now. If you just raise your hand, they will have to give you a Bible. Uh, if you do not own one, would you please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word. Uh, it's totally fine if you just forgot it and you want a physical copy. That's awesome, too. Uh, man, but we want you to have your eyes on the Word this morning. You can also follow along on your smartphone underneath the version. Version, uh, app underneath events. You can type in the Well Austin and follow along that way. Uh, if you don't know what that is or don't have that, it's okay. You can take this link, put it right into your browser. You can follow along that way as well. We say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word, okay? Uh, the words that are coming out of my mouth are not anointed. They are just man's words, but this is the very word of God that literally brings life into these dry bones, right? And so as we see the word, as we uh, allow God to communicate with us, as we sit up under the word, hopefully as the word is taught rightly and true, then we can be encouraged by God. We believe this is where the power is. And so we want your eyes on that, especially on a text like the text that we're going to cover today. So Ephesians chapter 6, uh, I'm just going to read the whole passage so we kind of have the slay of the land of where we're going this morning, and then we'll chop it up a little bit. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Whew. Last week, does that make people want to leave your church text? And by God's grace, we get another one this week. So here we go. Uh, man, we're going to chop, chop this whole thing up, okay? We're talking about uh, all of what's happening here, including bond servants, which is a cute word for slaves, okay? And so we're going to talk about slavery, what that looks like, what that means, hopefully unravel it a little bit for us, just as we did last week with submission and headship, and put it in its right and proper context, and kind of chop this whole thing up, all right? And so what Paul is doing here is he's continuing what scholars would call a household code, all right, a household code. And what happened was, is throughout the first century, there were people that would write these codes about how you are to live in your house. And what they would tackle is marriages, parenting, and kind of work relationships. And so Paul is actually just following the custom of the time. He's writing a household code, and he's addressing marriage, we talked about last week. Parenting, we'll hit on this week. And kind of work, which we'll hit on this week as well. Except there's one major and massive difference between 
most household codes and what Paul is actually doing here. And it's like, it's wildly beautiful and it like makes you want to punch something over two minutes into the sermon, all right? There's just a stark and a, a drastic difference between what Paul is doing and what other people would do because all ancient household codes that we have ever found uh, would only address the male leaders of the household. And so the men that were in a leadership position in the household. However, we see in Paul's household code, the only text that is like this is the ancient text. He does not just address the men, but he addresses the wives last week. He addresses the children this week, and he addresses the slaves as we see this week as well. And in irony, not only does he address them, which was never done, but he actually addresses them first. He kind of gives them a position, a seat of honor in some way. And so what I would argue that Paul is doing here is he is showing us the liberating lordship of Jesus. I know that's a long, a packed phrase, but it's the phrase we're going to keep using throughout the morning, this morning, because I think this is what the thrust of the text is, is that Jesus is a lordship. When Jesus comes in and becomes lord of your life, it is liberating to your life and to the lives around you. It creates a a quality. It brings up this beautiful diversity. It kind of evens the playing field where it may have been uneven. The liberating lordship of Jesus. As Jesus becomes king of our heart, like we just sang, there is freedom. There is liberation. That's what we'll be chopping on. And so Paul, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he kind of highlighted the gospel for us. Hey, here's what the gospel is. You need to believe this. This is rich. It will make your life come alive. And then in chapters four through six, he's helping us apply that gospel message. So how do we live in holiness? We looked at for a couple weeks. What does it look like to serve our church? We looked at in the first week in chapter four. What does it look like to do marriage well? And then this week, how do we live this out in the rest of our household? Paul is saying, if you believe the gospel, it actually begins to impact every area of our life. What is beautiful about this gospel, though, is that it is not just a kind of self-help gospel in a way, but it actually brings liberty and beauty, not just to you, but to everybody around you. As Jesus' lordship increases in your life, you bring liberty to other people's lives as well. It levels the playing field. It liberates you to be who God has actually made you to be, an imago day, an image bearer, somebody who looks like Christ in a lot of ways. And so an example of that, of how the gospel is liberating or how it equals the playing field, is look at verse 4 again, right? You would actually in that culture expect that text to say something like, children, do not provoke your fathers to anger, because that would be a natural way to read that. The men were the leaders of the household, blah, blah, blah. We just went through that, right? But it's not what it says. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, right? And so all of a sudden, we see Paul kind of leveling the playing field in a culture that didn't really care a whole lot about kids, a la our culture oftentimes as well, right? All of a sudden, we see Paul saying, no, no, no. Not only are they not here for you to use them for your own gain, which is what that culture would say about children, but you are actually here to be used by them. You get underneath them. You lift them up. And so you do not provoke them to anger. He levels the playing field with kids, with slaves, with wives, with everybody who may have felt some sort of oppression in that culture. Paul is showing, man, the gospel actually changes things. And it brings all this beauty. It brings this significance. It brings this equality. It restores the image of God in every single person, no matter their race or gender or role or socioeconomic position or whatever it may be. The gospel is unifying. Amen? 
And that's what we're looking at even today as Paul is doing that. It helps you be who God has actually called you to be. And so children, as we start off with in that text, were uh, really kind of seen as outcasts in that society. But Paul would say in verses 1 through 3, he actually honors them. They're not just outcasts. They're not a part of the family of God at large, excuse me. And so it's not just the dads that are great, but it's actually the children that get brought in too. Paul, like Jesus, did not see kids as lesser or tried to cast them out in some ways, but he brought them in in really beautiful ways. He tells the dad to live sacrificially. The gospel uh, liberates children to be image bearers. The gospel drastically changes every aspect of the household code because it does something beautiful in each of us. And so as we're looking at the children, when he uh, addresses them, that immediately actually shows us something that Paul assumes about the children at large. He actually is assuming that the children are in the worship gathering along with the adults, right? This is actually significant because much like the women, the children were not allowed to learn at an early age, but apparently in the early church, they actually removed that barrier and said, no, 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 the kids can come in and they can learn as well. What is really significant about this is that Paul actually expected the children to not just be learners, but to understand all the complexities complexities of the gospel, and then to learn how to live that out in their lives as well. And so immediately we get this kind of nugget of a point here where, man, Paul thought that the gospel was dynamic enough for it to be a depth that we can never fully travel into, and yet simple enough where everybody could understand it. But think about the complexities that we've talked about in Ephesians. I mean, literally just the first sermon, we talked about the Trinity, we talked about predestination, we talked about sin. Like, these are concepts that are hard for us to grasp. And Paul is assuming, man, not only are the children present, but they are grasping it and then they learn how to apply the gospel. Paul is literally bringing them up in a culture that often looked down upon them. And he's saying, children, now that you have heard the gospel, here's how you respond out of the gospel. Here's how the gospel actually shapes and changes your life. He didn't cast them away like that culture does, like our culture often does. And so we, like them, shouldn't be so quick to kind of see kids as almost annoying, which is what we do sometimes if we're transparent with ourselves, right? We kind of almost see them as like little nuisances in some ways, right? Where they're like crying in the middle of the sermon. You're like, I'm trying to listen, right? And we become the children in some ways, right? Like, no, we should actually honor them. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, age-appropriate worship isn't good or something like that. Man, we have that, right? We have children's ministry for a reason, help them understand the truths even more, help them to relate with people their age, etc. I think it's a good thing, right? And that culture, though, is like, we can't teach them anything. And we say, no, 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 no. Kids can learn too. They can actually get the gospel. In fact, it's often the kid that understands the gospel first that brings it into their family, as a lot of you all know, as first-generation Christians, right? And so, man, the gospel begins to drastically change things. So he tells kids, hey, now that the gospel takes place, obey your parents. But then he says, in the Lord. What Paul is always doing is he's always protecting the quote-unquote weaker vessel, the person in the culture who may have been looked down upon or trampled upon. He always sets boundaries for their protection. So he takes it a step further than submit. We talked about last week. He brings the word obey in, which is a heavier weight, and yet he still says in the Lord. And so in other words, if the parents are telling the child to do something that is not godly, that is not in the Lord, that is not worshipful of Jesus, then the kids actually should not do that for they 
they have a greater father in our God and our king. That's who they ultimately obey. However, obedience as a child does help them learn as an adult how to obey God as their greater father. And so we do obey and we teach obedience so that there can be that transfer as we grow older. And so, boom, he then quotes the Ten Commandments. He says, hey, honor your father and mother. This is part of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. But so now he kind of switches from children to actually all of us. For while we may not be children in age, we are all children of someone, right? And so he says, hey, honor your father and mother. And so one way we can even practically think about this is like, hey, how do we honor our parents as they get older, right? Like, like as we become adults and as we begin to have parents that are growing older, do we actually see them as annoying or as little nuisances that we have to kind of take care of at some point? And so rather than doing our responsibility that we should to honor our parents, we just kind of put them in retirement home, right? I mean, that's hard, right? But that's true, you know, now I don't think retirement homes are bad. They actually can be really, really good, really helpful for the family at large. But I do think we need to check our hearts. Are we actually wanting to honor our parents? Has the gospel taken root in such a way where we do not see an inconvenience for us as an annoyance, but rather as a way by which we serve and display our king who serves us so recklessly and so beautifully? Like, like do we display that same truth or are we selfish? Do we only think about ourselves? Paul would throughout this whole text say, now the gospel has taken place. It does not allow you to think about yourself, but you think about your wife, you think about your husband, you think about your kids, your parenting, your job, you think about everybody else first and different. Do we think like that? Right? This is an important question, I think. And so, man, we shouldn't be angry just because maybe our, our mom, who has never had a smartphone before, doesn't know how to use FaceTime. Teacher, y'all, right? Like, it's okay, you know? Or all of a sudden, if, if there's sickness, man, sacrifice for them as they did for you. This is what the gospel would call us to do, to honor our parents, not obey them as adults, right? But to honor them nonetheless. And so, man, the gospel actually begins to change things. He then moves to fathers, and he tells the fathers to not provoke their kids to anger. I love how he singles out dads here, because while I do think that both parents have a proclivity to kind of do that, it is the men that tend to do that a little bit more, that they provoke their kids to anger. In fact, in ancient times, the fathers literally owned the kids. In fact, in a lot of these household codes, the slaves were called slaves, and the children were called like little slaves, essentially. And so kids were there to do the bidding of the father, to serve the father. And so they can kind of treat the children however they wanted to. And so the household code at the time was take over, be a disciplinarian, do whatever it takes so that the kid will serve you. But Christianity is so radical in this way because it says, no, 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 no. Not only are they not your little slaves to do whatever you want, but you're also not to be an over-disciplinarian. Don't even provoke them to anger, but rather you lay down your life and begin to bring them up in the Lord. You serve them in this way. And so this is a a drastic difference, right? Christianity is so radical. And so don't beat them down with your words. Don't provoke them, right? Don't leave them feeling low, but you get low. You humble yourself. You lift them up because the gospel frees you from having to show your dominance as a father or to show your strength as a father. And it frees you to actually show your strength in a submissive, in a humble, in a gentle way, which is way harder to do anyway. And so it actually 
actually calls you up to be more of a man that God has created you to be, to get low, to show them how sacrificial, how loving, how, how service-oriented you are toward them, just as we should be toward our Father in Christ. And so the gospel brings this equality in a way. The lordship of Jesus literally levels the playing field between parents and children. It says, hey, really, actually, yes, children, obey your parents, but, but parents, especially fathers, you also serve your children. One is not here for the other. You're both here for each other as you love each other, as you point each other to Christ. And so fathers, right, don't be abusive. Don't be constantly nagging. Don't be an over-disciplinarian. Don't provoke them to anger. However, in irony, the exact same thing true, or the exact same thing is true on the other side too. You can be an underdisciplinarian and actually still be provoking your kids to anger, because the second half of that verse says, "But discipline them and instruct them in the way of the Lord." Right? We all know, right? The kind of entitled kid at Target who screams, "I hate you, mom!" because he can't have Skittles. All right. Now listen, straight up, I know some kids are possessed by the devil, okay, I know that, and maybe that's what's happening there, right? But more than likely, it's actually a model of underdiscipline, and the kid is now provoked to anger because you are overly passive, allow them to kind of do what they want, and that stirs up anger in them. So the Bible would also say, no, 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 your job is also to instruct and to train. And so in ancient culture, it was overbearing, it was dominating, it was overly discipline-oriented, but then in our culture at times we're like no 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 just nurture them let them be who they are don't don't tell them what to do right this text is no 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 you instruct them in the lord you point them to jesus you know what is good for them you train them up well right and so our culture would say hey hey don't really do anything right like let them figure it out and this culture would say no 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 do everything overlord them and the bible would walk right down the middle and say neither of those are true right we are to lovingly sacrificially lay down our life for them and yet build them up in the lord teach them in the lord and who he is is love them towards Christ more and more, which is another important point that we see here. Uh, parents, but fathers especially, right? It says, train them up in the way of the Lord. Do you know the Lord well enough to make disciples out of your kids? Remember last week how it said, husbands, wash your wives with the word? <laughs> right? This week it says, hey, instruct your children in the Lord, right? Do you have enough of a affection? Have you spent enough time gazing at Jesus? Have you begun to be transformed by the beauty of the gospel? Has the gospel taken root in your heart in such a way where not only are you not living for other people to please you, but rather you are trying to serve other people, but in that serving, do you know Jesus so well so as to not just uh, use people, but literally make disciples out of people, even those people in your own household. And that same thing is true with wives toward husbands as they make disciples out of them and as they also make disciples out of their children. But I love that it points to the emphasis on men here because I feel like so often in that culture, and it's true in our culture today, the men desire to punt their responsibility to the children's ministry or to their wives. And no men, you are called to love, to know, to serve, to see, to understand, to be affectionately, desirously overwhelmed with the beauty of who Jesus is. And and then lead others into that in a sacrificial, submissive, humble way. 
Do you know the Lord like that, friends? This is what the Bible is telling us to do. It is drastically different than all other household codes. It levels the playing field, and it calls us up to be true image bearers of God, to look like Jesus, to lay down our lives for those around us. And so are we looking at the Lord in those beautiful ways? Now, I will admit that sometimes that's really, really hard for men to do and for women to do as well, but because we have not seen good examples in our own household, right? And so maybe we didn't see a father that was sacrificial or that laid down his life. Maybe our father did always provoke to anger, right? I grew up in a household a lot like that. My dad, before coming to know the Lord, was actually very, very abusive physically, emotionally, verbally. And so I grew up a very angry child. And it wasn't until God captured me and his grace fell on my life that I shed that anger. But I was also abusive and angry and and frustrated because I grew up in a house like that. And so some of us may look like that. In fact, I remember one time in specific, uh, we were outside and I was like doing something in the yard. My dad loved to have us do something in the yard. And I was just like messing up because I'm a little kid. You know what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. And so I messed up and I like broke this plant, okay? And my dad just started like laughing at me. And he like pointed his finger like in my face, like right here and was like laughing at me. And I was like, I will stab you, dog. Like, I remember thinking that was like a nine-year-old, right? Like, this provoking to anger. And so, man, maybe that's some of your story, right? Well, what do we do with that if you do not know how to live that out? Man, let me tell you, you have a better father now. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have the perfect father that has never provoked you to anger, that has always served you. Fix your eyes on him that you may know how to be a good father. Have you looked at Jesus, friends? Have you looked at him? Have you looked at him? But I would also take it a step further and I would say, you now have a church family, as Josh talked about in the hosting time, right? You have a family of God now that you can actually look at. Are there men in here who are raising their children like that? Are there ladies in here who are sacrificing for their children as well, loving them, serving them, nurturing them, honoring them, lifting them up, disciplining them, instructing them? Do you see it? Man, go learn from them, right? We are called to be a family of God as we sort of love, honor, and, and cherish one another. And so, man, single people, this may not feel like it applies to you directly, but it actually does. Because if you're in the family of God, then you are a part of the family. And we are all called to be spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of each other. In fact, Tony Merida, who's a pastor in North Carolina, he says this. He says, those of you who are not yet parents, remember that the whole body of Christ helps train children. Paul seems to assume that children are in attendance as this letter is read along with others who may not be parents. The instruction is for everyone. If you are single, married with no kids, or married with moved out kids, the kids at your church are on one level your kids. The church is a family. What this means is that you should love them, pray for them, teach them, and serve them while recognizing the parents have a unique and special calling to do this. And so the gospel literally completely changes our view and our understanding of how we are children and of our parenting as well. It gives value so that we don't see kids almost as like non-human, but rather image bearers of God. And it humbles us so that we can serve and love. As the gospel takes root, listen, it brings liberty to both the father, the mother and the children. It brings freedom into the whole family because the gospel brings liberty. The lordship of Jesus is liberating. Do we believe that? Has it taken root? Is it sinking in and changing every aspect of our lives? That's what Paul is pressing in on here in this chapter. Okay, well then what about the next section we say, right? The gospel creates freedom and liberty and and as Jesus becomes Lord, yay, I see parenting, that kind of makes sense, but slaves... (laughs) All right? 
Yikes, you know, uh, that's a hard one, okay? So before getting practical, all right, and kind of giving practical ways that we can do this, I want to address the idea of slavery here, okay? For most of us that were born in the States at least, our idea of slavery is chattel slavery, which is the, you know, whites owning blacks here in America. And so that's what we understand slavery to be. In fact, we actually even see selfish men who are there for their own personal gain and who who uh, dehumanize men and women made in the image of God actually use texts like this text that we are reading to justify the inhumane treatment of other people. And so this text could be just straight up confusing because this is the culture of the climate that we lived in, right? Now, we don't have enough time to go into the full history of this, but I would also uh, argue with you and contend with you, if you read throughout history, it was actually the Christians that were using texts just like this and other texts that actually undermined and eventually overthrew the type of slavery that we are familiar with. They would use these very passages to say, no, 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 you're interpreting scripture incorrectly, right? Here's what it's actually saying. They actually overthrew through slavery. And so the abolitionist movement, if you're familiar with that, uh, it was estimated that over 80% of the people in that movement were Christians, okay? In fact, there was so much Christianity wrapped up within the movement to overthrow this unjust and unjust cause that, man, a lot of times you don't read it in history books because they would use violent and vehement language against the slave owners because they were saying, what you are doing is a colossal sin, right? You look at guys like Charles Spurgeon, if you know him. Man, his body wouldn't even let him visit the American South because they thought that the slave owners would kill him because of how much he was against them and was literally distributing his messages to the slaves that there may be freedom in that camp. You look at people like William Wilberforce or John Wesley or Charles Finney or on and on and on and on. There were so many prominent people that were actually undermining and ultimately overthrowing the sort of slavery that we know. And so when we think about slavery, we have all these negative uh, connotations that enter in because of the culture we grew up in. We kind of think of 12 years a slave, and that's kind of the only way that we think of it, Amistad or something like that, right? But no, there's actually a, a, a difference here, okay? And so slavery in ancient Rome wasn't like the slavery of the Africans that we know of, but very, very, very different. For one, it had nothing to do with race. The slavery in Rome that we see had nothing to do with race. Anybody could be a slave, a, Ro- a Roman citizen, a Jew, a, a Greek, whoever, whereas here in the States, it was just based on the color of your skin right? Also, it wasn't lifetime like it is here. In fact, in that culture, most uh, men bought their freedom by the age of about 30. And so you can actually buy your way out of slavery. Here, it was a a, a lifetime. This deplorable act literally oppressed them till they died, right? But this wasn't true in that culture. Uh, Slavery didn't constitute a different social class. So there were slaves that could go uh, to school. There were some that were doctors or accountants or things like that. That was not true right, in uh, uh, the slavery that we know of. Uh, Slaves could go to school. There were many people who actually sold themselves into slavery because they knew that it was better economically and there was more stability and safety for their families, so they would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. There are other differences as well, but I just want to say that, man, what we think of and what the scripture is highlighting are two very, very different ideas of slavery. So, like marriage last week, we have to reshift our mind, 
reshift our definition just a little bit to see that there's a difference here. So as we tackle this section, the best way to look at it, the the closest thing that we can kind of have that unifies it is more so like an employer-employee type of relationship. What does that look like to, to do work well? How does the gospel liberate you to work well, to work as unto the Lord? How does the gospel impact your work or impact your profession? Now, if you read closely enough, though, right, you would read things that say in this text, like, masters, do not treat your slaves harshly, and you would say, man, how is that employer-employee relationship, right? And I would say, man, you are reading correct, and it is the right thing to read like that. You're spot on accurate with that question. And so while some pastors and commentators are tempted to make this only an employer-employee relationship, I would say that's not fully what's actually happening in this text. It was still slavery in the way that uh, we know it to be oppressive and not good. And so rather than just skirt over it and act like it's just employer-employee, your pastor has a little bit too much melanin in my skin all right, to let that happen. And I say, we got to tackle this a little bit more, right, to actually understand what Paul is doing here. The idea of slavery still was not ideal, right? And so while it's more like employer-employee, it is not fully employer-employee by any means. And so you may ask then, well, why didn't Paul just rebel against slavery? Why didn't he just completely overthrow it then? And I would say there are two reasons for that. One of them is that 30% of Rome was estimated to be slaves at the time. That's the vast majority of the population, right? We think about education, how much it infiltrates all of us, and yet only like, what, 8% of our congregation stood up, right? 30% of Rome would have been uh, slaves at that time. So in a lot of ways, because they even sold themselves into slavery, a rebellion against that would have fallen on deaf ears because they would have been like, rebel against what? right? Like it was voluntary. They put themselves in it in a lot of ways. And so I don't know if it would have been heard correctly, okay? But secondly, and probably more primarily, what Paul was focused on was the spread of the gospel, that the gospel would begin to take root in their hearts because I believe that Paul understood and believed that where the gospel takes root, then social change would naturally and significantly begin to happen. In fact, as the gospel begins to root itself in in the lives of people, social constructs will begin to change around them. And in reality, the, the, uh, 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 the, the unhealthy practice of slavery would ultimately be undermined as the gospel takes root. We actually see that in the example I just gave. As slavery became worse and worse and worse and more and more deplorable, Christianity rose up more and more against it, right? Let's get in our mind, right Christianity too, right? Because just like a lot of other things, there were people that were proclaiming Christianity that were slave masters, and yet they were misusing scripture and may not have been Christians at all, right? But right Christianity, as the gospel actually took root in your heart, began to rebel against things that were inappropriate, things that were uh, oppressive, they began to push back. And so it was the true Christians, I'll use that language, that pushed back against the darkness that was happening there in that culture. The gospel began to create this social change. And I believe that Paul actually understood that. And so the spread of the gospel would ultimately create the freedom and the equality that we long to see, which is why I think he's focusing on the liberating lordship of Jesus. He is drawing a sense of equality amongst all 
all people here in this text, right? As the gospel takes root, it drastically changes things. The gospel just changes. And so Christianity, right, it'll bring forth great uh, social change because of the gospel primarily. And that's what Paul was trying to push in. He was spreading the gospel. And so I would also argue, though, friends, that even within this text, Paul was actually undermining the institution of slavery and beginning the seeds and process to create equality holistically. And so if the gospel truly does, even out the playing field, we actually see Paul doing it even here in this text. If the gospel actually changes all things, not just our marriage, not just how we parent, not just our work, but also the social inequalities that we see, if the gospel actually liberates everything, then Paul would have to be doing this, and I think you see him doing this very, very clearly. For example, in Husbands and Wives, Paul gives a theological and biblical reason why he thinks that this is a right position to have. The roles are appropriate. He quotes scripture, Genesis 2, right? He gives a theological construct, just as Christ loved the church, so we should love our wives. In Parents, he quotes scripture, right? Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. But if you look in this whole passage, Paul quotes no scripture and he gives no theological basis for why you should function in the aspect of slavery. In fact, it would have been really easy for Paul to do that for Jesus became a slave to all that he might set us free. It would have been really easy to draw theological uh, reasoning, but Paul didn't do that. Why? Because there is no good theological reasoning for slavery. There is no biblical justification for why that should exist. In verse 9, he tells the masters that they are slaves of God. And so he says, while you are owning slaves, you are actually a slave. Oh, and by the way, God sees no difference between you and the person you own. There is no partiality with God. That would have been wildly offensive in a culture like that. And Paul did not care that he was offending people because he wanted to stand for truth more than care about what people thought about him. And so Paul is standing up against injustice in that way. In verse 5, he calls them earthly masters. He didn't call husbands earthly husbands. He didn't call fathers earthly fathers, though those are both true. We have a true and better husband in Jesus. We have a true and better father in God our Father, but he calls them earthly masters and says there's a true master that is in heaven. He's undermining the the position in a way by calling it earthly, right? He addresses slaves first, so he gives them privilege. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, he tells the slaves, if you can buy your freedom, then do it. It is right and good you should be free. In the book of Philemon, it is a literal book that is written to a slave master, Philemon, because Onesimus, one of his runaway slaves, had run off to Rome. Paul found Onesimus. He shared the gospel with him. Onesimus converted. Paul sent him back to Philemon, carrying the letter of Philemon that you have in your Bibles today. And in verse 16, Paul says to the slave master, I could make demands of you because I'm an apostle, but I'm not going to do that because I believe that the gospel has actually taken root in your heart too. And if the gospel has taken root in your heart, then you should no longer see this man as a slave, but as your brother. You are a Christian now. You should realize there is a difference. This is not a healthy or good thing. There is equality that comes with the gospel. No longer see him as your servant, but as your brother. And in fact, because he's your brother, send him back to me so that I can send him out to be a missionary, Paul says. 
That is a drastic difference, right? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, he literally makes up a word to describe slave trading. There was no word that existed in that culture. Paul created a word to talk about the deplorities of slave trading and selling of individuals, of humanity, of stealing people and, and giving them to somebody else. Paul, over and over and over again, directly and indirectly undermined this institution of slavery because even though it wasn't like what you and I think of, it still wasn't ideal, and the gospel works out in ideals. It literally changes everything. It redeems, it rebrings back in what God had intended for humanity, and to be underneath another human is not what he intended. And so Paul literally shifts over and over and over again. And so Paul sees how the gospel brings liberty to all people. And so we too, when we see injustices, like the people of old, should speak up, not care what people think about us, even if it's not socially uh, acceptable, or even if our culture says, oh no, this is okay to do. If it is wrong, it is wrong, and we should speak up against that because the gospel should bring equality, should bring unity, should bring beauty, should bring redemption for everybody. It levels the playing field. Has the gospel taken root in your heart to that level, friends? That's what the Bible is demanding of us, right? It liberates us, calls us to see everybody as image bearers of God. And so what does this practically look like then in working? And let me actually say this, what does it look like working in places where maybe you are being oppressed a little bit? Maybe you're not being recognized for a job well done. Maybe your boss is a little bit harsh or over-aggressive. Maybe uh, you are in a menial task. Remember, he's writing to slaves who probably didn't really want to do the things that they were doing, right? What does it look like when you don't really want to do the things that you are doing? How does the gospel impact your work? Even in situations that are not ideal, the gospel still comes in and creates change, even in those situations. Well, we have to understand how the gospel changes our mindset of work. If our mindset changes, our practice and our actions will change. Think about it like this. If we all went to a bookstore today and I grabbed a book and it was titled uh, Called by God to Serve God Full-Time, what would you think that book was about? Being a missionary, I heard totally. What else? You know what I know you wouldn't think it was about? Farming, right? Working on janitorial staff somewhere, being a teacher or a stay-at-home mom, that's not what we would think of. We would think of serving God full-time, missionary, church planner, whatever it may be. But what if the book was actually talking about that? Because we are all called by God to serve God in our jobs because the gospel does actually impact our work. And it's not just the missionary, the pastor that is called by God to bless others around them. But this text would show us and many other texts would show us all of our professions actually play into that at large, right? Really, we see work being liberated, even if it is a lowly or menial or boring or even bad positions like slavery, it can still be liberated because if we are serving God and not man, then there is all this beauty that is actually within it. Why? Because as we are serving God and not man, we realize that, man, listen, even if you're, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, picking up garbage, you're like, man, I hate this job, right? Man, you are still serving God's creation. And in serving God's creation, you are actually serving God because God loves his creation. It would be like if you came over to babysit my kids. Well, yeah, you'd be serving my kids, but, but you're also serving me as the father of the kids. And so as we love on God's children, we are serving God, right? And so we need to see that all of work can 
actually be redeemed. God loves this world. He wants to cultivate it. So as we work, whatever our jobs may look like, we can actually work as unto the Lord and realize that there is beauty and joy within all of that, right? Not enough Christians meditate on this. Like, do you meditate that your boss ain't your boss? God is your boss. Do you think about that, right? Maybe you're like, man, I'm just so underpaid. I'm working so hard. I'm so underpaid. Verse 8 tells you, you will receive a reward from God. Do you believe that? Has the gospel taken that much root in your heart where you realize even in positions that you may hate, if you are serving God, not just trying to please man, people pleaser, but you're actually serving our king, then man, you will actually be uh, uh, rewarded by God in the end. Is it possible for a stay-at-home mom to make a meal as if Jesus himself was going to be the honored guest? Is it possible for her to, to clean the house like Jesus was coming over that night and in a way to serve Christ by doing that, right? Yes, it is. That was also not me trying to be passive and tell my wife to make me a great meal tonight. That's not what I was doing, all right? Like, no, 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 it is that, right? And so uh, if you're a teacher, you may be like, ah, I know, but like these kids though, bro, right? Like that kid you were talking about in Target, I have 13 of those kids in my classroom, right? It's like, yeah, okay, it may be hard. It may be frustrating. It may be boring. Maybe your principal is disrespecting you, y'all. Your principal is not your boss. God is. Do you believe this? Has the gospel taken root? Has it driven down deep where it begins to change every aspect of your lives? God sees you, right? Remember, Paul's talking to slaves, right? He says, no, 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 you are liberated. God sees their work. You are actually serving the Lord. In fact, put this slide up real quick. There are, look at this, five times in the course of just three verses, as you would Christ, as bond servants of Christ, the will of God, as unto the Lord, from the Lord. Paul is saying, if you have been shaped by the gospel, it will change your whole mindset and you will realize everything that you are doing is actually for and from God. And look at verses six and five. It says, from the heart or with a sincere heart, right? So it's a heart posture thing. Do you believe that the gospel changes your work? Because then if you are working, even in situations where you do not want to, where it may be hard, you can believe that God is a good master who sees you, who would not treat you harshly, who will reward you in the end, and you are actually serving him, not your boss, not even each other, but God himself. So this command is clear. All of us should be drastically impacted by Christ. The same thing is true with masters. We'll fly through this one, but maybe you're like an employer. It would be the same thing. Don't treat your employees harshly, it says. In fact, the text says, do the same thing to them. It says in verse 9, the same what? This, do this to them. Don't just try to be an eye service or a people pleaser, but literally serve them behind closed doors. Love them, honor them, lift them up even when they are not looking. Look, the gospel brings equality and practicality at the exact same time. So serve them when they aren't watching, right? Serve them behind closed doors. Don't be harsh with your employees, right? Don't beat your employees like I do Nick at basketball, right? <laughs> It says, hey, right, do this well, right? Think about how practical this is, though, friends. If you are an employee like this, who wouldn't want to hire you? And if you are a boss like this, who wouldn't want to be your employee 
everybody would come in. You would literally assume the best talent in the world. This is not just theological and awesome, but it's also practical. It's actually a way by which we can love this creation well, because if we truly believe we are serving God, it will change everything about our lives. The gospel brings liberation, humbling those who may have a position above somebody, but equally in the playing field, and lifting up those who may not have a position, giving them honor, saying, no, 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 God sees you. The gospel is liberating. It is beautiful. Has the lordship of Christ taken root in your heart like that, friends? And here's how we can know that this whole text is true. Here's how we can be sure that we should walk in this. Because Jesus was our example in all of these things and our forgiveness when we fail at these things. See, Jesus was the child, right, that always honored his parents. I mean, think about as he's dying on the cross. He only said seven phrases. It was so hard to speak, but one of the phrases that he said was, John, your mother, mother, your son. He is still trying to honor his mom even as he is dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. He lived this out beautifully. He is the father, Isaiah 6 calls him, the everlasting father who never provokes his kids to anger, but always teaches us the way of the Lord. He instructs his children in the way of the Lord. He is the servant, the slave, Mark 1044 says, who became a slave to all. And he is the master, friends, who does not treat us harshly. Jesus is the perfect example of all of these things. And yet, at the exact same time, he's also our forgiveness when we fail. Because when we are children that disobey our parents, when we do not honor our mother and father, when we treat our employees harshly, when we do not work as unto the Lord, Jesus died as if he had done all of those things himself with the utmost extremity. See, Jesus, though a perfect son, died a son suffering the wrath of God as if he had only disobeyed his whole life. Jesus, in fact, was the master of heaven that came down to be a slave to earth so that you and I who were slaves to sin may now be freed from that bondage and one day rule with Christ over his creation to be masters. We should have been slaves forever to our own sin and yet now we are free, we'll be masters. Jesus is our example and he forgives you when you fail. And so even when we're not working as unto the Lord, even when we're not, we're we're provoking our kids to anger. Listen, friends, there's forgiveness in Christ. And then if you taste that grace, if you taste that forgiveness, it should alter who you are and literally begin to make you live like this because the gospel changes everything. Has it taken root in your hearts like this? I pray that we will be a church that believes this, that believes the gospel truly changes everything, and that we would live in light of that, that we would be sacrificial, that we would see injustices and call them out. I mean, think about the beauty of the church of Ephesus, y'all. It just got started, and there's slaves and freemen, masters and fathers, mothers and wives, Jews and Gentiles. The diversity of that church was beautiful because the gospel brings diversity. It brings liberation. It brings freedom. It brings equality. It levels the playing field. The gospel, dang, changes everything. Has it changed it in your heart too? I pray that we will be a church that knows how to live this out, that believes in the gospel, and that sees our lives differently because of that. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, that it truly does change. It changes everything, changes everything. God, where we have not submitted to the power of the gospel, would you help us to submit to that power in our hearts? 
Help us to honor our parents. Help us to not provoke our children to anger. Help us to see the people in this church as our family where we do serve and love. And so even if we don't have kids, will we serve these kids? Would we lift up each other? God, would we be people who work hard, even in jobs that we may hate, even in jobs that may be oppressive? Will we still work as unto you for you see us, God? God, will we see you as the ultimate master, as the ultimate father, who never provokes to anger, who never treats harshly, would we see you as the God that you are? And because of that sight, would we believe, God, would we believe in our hearts that you have called us up, you have given us freedom, that your lordship is truly liberating? God, I pray for those who may not know you. Friends, right now you can have a king who is not just a king, but he's also a father who's not just a father, but he's also a Lord, who's not just a Lord, but he's also a friend, who's not just a friend, but he's also a master, who's not just a master, but he's also a husband. He is everything your heart craves. And right now, by faith, if you say, Jesus, I believe in you, I give my life to you, I wanna serve you like this, I, I want to feel that liberation, then you can be freed from the bondage of sin from the slavery of sin that we are in, free to live a life in God and to bless others around us. Would we be a church that does that because of our profession of you? I pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.